Hey, this is Coach Brendan Sir. Welcome to another special edition of our Coaching You podcast. And today we're sharing with you some four of the very, very best speakers that we had these past two weeks on Master Your Mindset Summit presented by MindView. I think you're really going to enjoy him. Let me tell you about Trevor Moet. He is a mental skills or conditioning expert that has worked with, you know, Alabama, Florida State, Georgia, and is Russell Wilson's actual private uh, mental skills coach. And also, they work together as founding business partners of Limitless Minds. So you're going to love him and what Trevor brings to the table. Lawrence Sisler uh, is a, she is such a star. She is a ESPN sideline reporter, but she's a tremendous motivational speaker. And all I can tell you is make sure, please, that you have plenty of tissues when you listen to her. She has an amazing story. She is a rising star. The great John Gordon, one of the world's premier authors, a uh, great, great speaker. Uh, John is incredible, uh, Mr. Positive. And, uh, you know, he gives you a real blueprint of how to come out of the pandemic. I love what he says. And Bob Delaney, one of our best friends and uh, has been a friend of mine uh, since our college days, uh, you know, together competing against each other. Premier, one of the best NBA officials of all time. Uh, the thing I love about Bob is that he has really become a real world-class expert, you know, in PTSD uh, and also his m views on mind, health, and healing are, you know, are top of the line. So I think you're really going to benefit from the things that he gives, especially in this time that we're dealing with right now. All right, so let's get started. Here we go. Trevor Moad. Enjoy. What an absolute privilege. I'm Trevor Moad, um, co-chairman of Limitless Minds. Uh, we've loved our partnership with MindView, and I'm excited to spend some time with you today uh, to discuss one of the many areas that you're discussing uh, in and around the MindView Summit. Uh, we always look at a psychological architecture. I come from the sports world, spent many years at Alabama, Florida State, Georgia, uh, obviously athletes like Russell Wilson, who's involved as the co-chairman of our company. Uh, but many, many uh, others in special operations community and a wide variety. And when we talk about a psychological architecture, psychology is not just something that's based for uh, somebody needs to deal with me when I have a problem, but there's a lot of other ways to look at it. How we assess ourselves, how we learn about ourselves, how we understand the assessment part, which I haven't seen a better one than that MindView uh, has put out uh, on the non-cognitive assessment but years in the NFL draft and players were making critical decisions based upon the information that you're going to get from personal interviews, psychological assessments. And then how do you help people get better psychologically? Um, how do you help people who are, are, are going through challenges? There's so many different areas in and around the mind. Uh, it's exciting to be one piece of that puzzle uh, and to join you today. Uh, today, really, uh, what I wanted to hit on is this idea of neutral thinking. Now, a lot of times, uh, many of us have heard negative thinking, and we've heard positive thinking. But what we haven't really heard that's a huge part of what we do at Limitless Minds is the education in and around uh, this ability to stay neutral. What we know about positive thinking is the information and the data around being positive is anecdotal. Uh, it can be helpful. Uh, it's a good place to get our mind, but many times it's attached to an outcome. Um, I need to be positive. I can win. I can succeed. I can get healthy. Uh, I'm going to have a great quarter. I'm going to dominate. Negative thinking, what we know about negative thinking is it's not really anecdotal. It's very clear. It does work, and it works negatively against you. So it's essentially you weaponizing you, and whether you're the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic, um, all the data suggests that negative thinking works negatively, uh, anywhere from 83% up. Uh, our creativity, our ability to make decisions, uh, stifling ourselves, our ability to move forward uh, from any situation, either good or bad. Um, so negative thinking has um, outcomes that are scary, and they're going to take a situation and make it worse. 
And then we have a middle ground, what we call neutral thinking, which I'll, which I'll get to. When I first joined uh, the University of Alabama football program, our first season we went six and six. And our coach, Nick Saban, who was uh, at one point one of the top leaders, according to Forbes magazine, it's crazy how people view sports, but particularly in the South, they're huge and they're important. They're a business, they're EBITDA driven, and the head coach is the CEO. And at the end of the season, he wanted us to evaluate kind of the different areas that we were responsible for. Mine was our overall psychological architecture, working with a series of other experts. And uh, you have a limited amount of time you can impact and affect these athletes. Uh, so one of the things that we had talked about was, let's look at the information in this time we have each week, 30, 60, 90 minutes to impact our athletes psychologically, which was nowhere near the 18, 19 hours physically. Um, how do we get uh, and become the most effective? Well, we, again, followed the data that negative thinking does work and it works negatively. And as we started to study from Harvard and from Georgetown, that negative thinking actually was almost 40 to 70 times more powerful than positive thinking on how it impacted us. So think about um, your hard wiring going back 10,000 years ago to the dinosaur age, uh, the Jurassic age. Uh, we were wired then to assume the worst. Uh, not to assume the best. And that hasn't changed. So negative thinking was going to be most powerful. So how do we eliminate negative thinking from the organization? Okay, well, how is negative thinking transmitted? It's transmitted, uh, we, we talk to ourselves, but there's not a lot of power uh, or impact as much when we say things to ourselves as when we verbalize things out loud. So when I say something out loud, it's 10 times more powerful than when I think it. And if it's negative, it's a multiple of four to seven times on top of that. That's how we come up with 40 to 70 times. So when I externalize negativity, I don't want to be here. How did we get in this pandemic? Why am I furloughed? What's the situation? Uh, why is she treating me that way? Uh, God, it's 105 degrees. Why do I have my fifth Zoom meeting? I have quarantine fatigue. You know, whatever it is I start externalizing, I increase the probability by 70 times when I externalize it that it will produce a negative outcome for me. So based upon that, our goal was how do we get our players going into year two to stop saying stupid things out loud? Just stop saying them. We're not going to tell you to be positive, but what the data clearly shows us is externalizing negativity doesn't help me. And is there science to venting? Well, I need to vent to get it out. No, the data is what the data is. When I vent it, I increase the probability by 40 to 70 times whatever I'm venting about is more likely to happen. Doesn't mean it will happen, but it's more likely to happen. Great story. There's a, a story from a magazine called Success Unlimited from 1973. And it talks about a guy who was hired to fix a refrigerated boxcar. And he goes into this boxcar. He's trying to figure out, you know, exactly what's going on. And he gets locked inside a boxcar. Imagine a train that moves meat from one area to another. So this guy is locked inside this refrigerated boxcar. And his assumption is, obviously, I'm in a giant refrigerator. I'm going to freeze to death. So he finds a pen and he starts writing down the things that are going through his mind. And written words, like spoken words, like text, like text messages, are basically the verbalization through our hands. And he writes down, a uh, true story, I'm becoming colder. Then he writes down next, still colder now, nothing to do but wait. What was he waiting for? Was he waiting for help? No, he was, he was waiting for what he said next. Half asleep now, I can hardly write. Finally, I think I'm going to freeze to death. And, and they were, uh, as he wrote those last words, they came in many hours later and they found him and he was dead. But the temperature inside the boxcar, true story, was 56 degrees. There was plenty of air in the boxcar. There was no physiological reason for his death. The best they could explain is somehow he had talked himself into dying. And think about your kids and think about colleagues. How many times have we convinced ourselves of a reality that's not reality, but we make it a reality. So it becomes a reality and we walk down that, 
scary slope of that self-created reality. And, and so one of the things we want to be very mindful of then is just by not saying negative things out loud, um, I actually don't need to be as positive when I limit the negativity based upon negativity strength. And that's one of the things I want you to think about is, is how do I limit that negativity and then take that next step like a car, car goes reverse, forward, but it goes to neutral. And the idea of neutral thinking is instead of what people struggle with with positive thinking a lot of time is it makes them feel like they have to pretend something that happened that wasn't good uh, didn't happen. You know, like you're going through a, a, a challenge with your significant other and you go through a divorce. Uh, you know, hey, just think about all the people you get to meet. Well, that's not where your mind is. You got married not to meet people. So you need this middle ground of where you're like, okay, this did happen. All right. And it's true. But what happens next in my life is based upon what I do, not how I feel about my past. So neutral thinking is the past is real, but it's, it's not predictive. Um, so what happens next is based upon what I do. And we actually have neutral language where we talk about focusing on this is what I'm going to do next, as opposed to I'm going to win or dwell on the fact that I lost or dwell on the fact that I won and that impacts my ability to continue to win because I'm not behind the behaviors that are, you know, are going to allow me to be successful. So think about your, your mind as a marketing campaign and you're marketing the behaviors like McDonald's to all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I don't want to know that, right? But I've learned that because they did a great job of marketing an ad campaign. I want a neutral ad campaign focused on these are the things that are going to help me get to where I want to go. I'm responsible for what's happened in the past for better or for worse, but my future is going to be determined by what happens next in three states, then, now, and next. Then is real, now is in my control, and now has the most influence on next. So uh, absolute privilege to join you. You can learn more about us at our website, www.thinkbig-gofar.com. Uh, or visit us on social media um, at Think Big Go Far and at Limitless Minds. Uh, great opportunity to spend time with you. Uh, remember, you don't have to accept life the way it comes to you. You can design your life so it comes to you the way you want it to come to you. Takes what it takes. Have a fantastic rest of your journey. Thanks, Trevor. I love Trevor's messaging on the neutral mindset it is so important it's something that you know i've always believed in but i didn't know what to call it so after this quick timeout, we'll be back we're thrilled to have our longtime partners and friends at dr dish basketball on board as sponsors of the coaching you podcast dr dish machines are undoubtedly the most user-friendly and advanced machines in the world of basketball today Dr. Dish has completely revolutionized and reimagined the shooting machine to provide the best solution on the market. Join top programs around the world like Duke, North Carolina, Florida, and countless others and upgrade your shooting machine to Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish machines are the best way to increase purposeful reps in your program to get players better, faster, while tracking progress along the way. Dr. Dish provides so much more than just your standard shooting machines with custom training, pro trainers, and coaches on demand, real-time and detailed analytics, and top-of-the-line drills and workouts. If you're looking to take your program to the next level, look no further than Dr. Dish for the best basketball training machine in the world. If you have an old machine that's just collecting dust in your gym, did you know that you can trade that in to Dr. Dish for up to $1,500 off and get a new dish? Make sure to give our friends at Dr. Dish a follow at Dr. Dish B-Ball on Twitter and Instagram for great daily drills, workouts, tips, and inspiration. Or contact us at drdishbasketball.com. Don't forget to mention Coaching You or our podcast for $300 off your purchase. Our next guest, Lauren Sisler. As a sports reporter, I get to ask a lot of questions. I talk to coaches almost daily. We go over depth charts, personnel, the X's and O's, and, well, their next opponent. But I'm always curious to know more about a coach, 
the leader and CEO of the team. What drives them? What inspires and motivates them to get out of bed every morning to go to the practice facility and spend hours putting in a game plan so that they can have the best opportunity to go out and win their next game? What about you? I'll ask you those same questions. What ignites that fire inside of you? What are you passionate about? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And what kind of adjustments need to be made so that you can turn those weaknesses into success, into victory? The answer to those questions now become part of your identity. It's not what we do for a living that defines us. It's who we are and how we choose to wake up and spend every minute of our day. But it starts with self-discovery, embracing your identity, taking ownership of what is yours and yours alone. But I'll tell you from my own personal experience that finding your identity is truly a process. So I'll take you back to the beginning of my story, to the quiet suburban neighborhood that I grew up in in Roanoke, Virginia. It was me, my older brother, Alan, and my mom and dad, Leslie and Butch Sisler. You know, we were a happy family and like most, always on the go. For my brother Alan, it was baseball, basketball, or football practice. For me, it was gymnastics practice four to five days a week. You could usually find my dad on the sidelines coaching my brother up. Meanwhile, my mom would be taking me to and from my practices, keeping a watchful eye on my progress. Now, by the time I was in middle school and transitioning into high school, I knew that I wanted to compete at the next level. I wanted to be a collegiate gymnast on scholarship. So I sent out my recruiting tapes to gymnastics programs all over the country and received several responses. One from Rutgers University. Now Rutgers was never on my radar until I took that official visit and really that's all it took for me to fall in love with the team, the coaches and the campus. You know, so I put that pen to paper and signed my letter of intent and all my dreams were right there in front of me. So fast forward, it's now my second semester at Rutgers, March 23rd. Just before bed, I picked up the phone and called my parents as I always did. Yeah, I actually called my parents every single day. It was a quick conversation like most. We talked about gymnastics practice, a little about school. And just before I hung up, I said, I love you, dad. I love you, mom. They both said, we love you too. I then set my alarm clock, said my prayers and went to bed. A few hours passed and I wake up to the phone ringing. I looked at the clock and it's just past 3 a.m. I quickly grabbed the phone on the caller ID and it said home. I answered with hesitation, both confused and afraid. Hello? My dad on the other end said, Lauren, I, I need to talk to your brother. I said, Dad, what's wrong? I could hear it in his voice, he was shaking. Lauren, I just need to talk to your brother. I can't find his number. I said, Dad, please tell me what's wrong. He said, Lauren, your mom died. I couldn't believe I was hearing those words. What, mom died? I don't understand, she's 45 years old. It's the middle of the night. I just talked to her, what happened? Dad, what happened? He said, Lauren, I can't explain it now. I need you to call and tell your brother and then get on the next plane you can and I'll be at the airport to pick you up. I hung up the phone, called my brother and delivered the bad news and then did as my dad told me. I got on a plane and flew home where I expected him to be waiting. As I exited the plane, I ran through the terminal as fast as I could, wanting nothing more than to run and jump in my dad's arms and for him to tell me that everything was going to be okay. But unfortunately, my dad never did show up to the airport. I was left there waiting and wondering until my uncle and cousin arrived to deliver the bad news. My dad too had passed away. And that would be the beginning of my new reality, living life without my parents, my two best friends, the two people that would always tuck me in at night, both of them gone now forever. And as I sat there in complete shock, my mind is racing, trying to comprehend what had happened. How does something like this happen to my parents, the two people who loved with all of their hearts and were loved by so many? What happened? Unfortunately, it would be months before we as a family learned what took both of my parents' lives within hours of each other. Prescription drug overdoses. 
My mom, just 45, my dad, only 52. My mom was diagnosed with degenerative disc disease that required multiple surgeries. My father had chronic back pain along with post-traumatic stress disorder, also known as PTSD from his service in the military. My parents were both seeking treatment from a pain management doctor to help them cope with their chronic pain. These were two people who woke up every day with a smile on their faces, but underneath it all, they were suffering from this constant need to medicate in order to get out of bed in the morning and sustain some sort of normalcy. You know, my parents had never wanted to let my brother and me into their world of addiction. Not even their closest friends knew the dark secret they were keeping. They were shielding us and everyone around them from something they felt was too shameful to disclose. Within two weeks of burying both of my parents, I went back to Rutgers where I knew I had to fulfill a commitment to myself, my team, my university, and I knew my parents would want this. But the truth is I was running away from reality. Ultimately, I was suffocating from anger, guilt, fear, pain, and denial. How many of you have been in a challenging situation where it was much easier to run from the pain than to face the truth. Well, I ran and I ran and I ran. For seven years I ran. And let me tell you, it was absolutely exhausting. I refused to face reality and refused to acknowledge and accept the truth of what happened to my parents on March 24, 2003. Why seven years? I think for several reasons. Growing up, I had never precisely understood what addiction was. You know, stories of addicts were usually about dysfunctional people who had dropped out of school, were abandoned, lived on the streets, things that my parents weren't. My mom and dad were both employed. They were both supportive parents. They were fun, they were loving, they were smart. You know, I grew up in a happy home. I couldn't use the word addiction or overdose in the same sentence with my parents. I didn't really believe something like addiction could have a hold on my parents, two of the strongest people I knew. For years, I worried about not getting selected for things I had worked hard for, like media jobs and gymnastics awards. If people knew about my parents, they would assume that I wasn't capable because of my background or that I was at risk of falling into the same addictive pattern. I also felt that my parents' legacy was bound in my hands. I had to preserve their legacy at all costs. And denial was the easiest path, but it came with a hefty price tag, and that's shame. I carried that shame until I finally realized I wouldn't let the pain I harbored define me just like it didn't define my parents. And that is where yet another chapter of my story begins. As a sports reporter, I have this tremendous honor to cover some of the most prolific coaches and athletes to ever play the game. I've got this amazing vision of confetti falling on the field after a championship game has been won. It's ingrained in my mind. But here's the thing, that confetti to me isn't just a championship. That confetti represents a story, layers of stories in fact. And like those athletes and coaches, we all have a story. Truthfully, my vision of that was once blurred until I personally had the courage to share my own story. It was only when I started working as a sports reporter about a decade after their deaths that I started to truly undo those shackles of shame. I had finally made it. I had the career I had chased. I was living this life I had imagined. But I realized the lies about my parents made me feel like a fraud. My job was to find the truth in athletes' stories and report on how their personal lives shaped them into who they are today on the field. And yet I couldn't tell the truth about my own story. Once I started the painful process of opening up though, I discovered that there are silver linings in the trauma I experienced from my parents' addiction. It has shaped me into who I am. It has given me a different lens. My parents' death ignited a power and a gratitude toward life. I've been given an opportunity to have an impact on other people's lives and that is where I have found my purpose. So where in life have you found your purpose? And don't worry if you haven't found it. Keep searching, because I can assure you it is right around the corner. Finally, I have been set free. No more shame, no more guilt. What I began to realize is that my parents are no different than me or any of you. None of us are perfect and none of us are exempt from life's difficult circumstances. No one. 
We do, however, have the freedom of choice, the freedom to choose how we will respond. So from this point forward, how are you going to respond to adversity? How will your resilience shine through and lead you on your journey despite the challenges and disappointments that are all woven into the fabric of our lives? You get back up and you keep moving forward and you quit looking around at everyone else wishing you had what they had, thinking that maybe the grass is greener on the other side, because guess what? It is green where you water it. So get out the fire hose, folks. You know, a quote I've heard from many coaches be where your feet are. Yes, learn from the past. Dream about what the future holds. But embrace the moment. Embrace this moment. We have this incredible opportunity to be the author of our own book called Life. So I encourage you to pick up that pen and paper and fill each page with something you are proud of. Something that has meaning and purpose. And by all means, fall in love with your story. Thanks, Lauren. I can't imagine having gone through what she did as a college student, having had two college students and being able to handle that. But when you ever listen to her and you meet her, you understand completely why she's the woman she is. All right, let's take a quick time out and we'll be right back. MindView has just become our latest addition as a partner with Coaching You. MindView is an amazing, amazing company that literally is just releasing a platform. They have developed an incredible assessment that we have just totally, totally been blown away with because on this assessment that you can take in a matter of 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes on your phone, the things that you've never been able to measure before, like resilience, grit, hope, adaptability, all these things, they are able to measure them as to how you're thinking and feeling right now. This is a game changer as far as I'm concerned. I'm a strength finder guy. I love all that. But MindView is the latest technology. It is just literally coming on the market right now. The platform that they've created is second to none. The emphasis right now on your players' mental wellness is unprecedented. I'm sold on MindView. Now it's your turn. For more information about MindView, M-I-N-D-V-U-E, please contact the COO, Cleet McQuinn. His email is cmcquinn at mindview.com or visit their website at mindview.com. Please enjoy the great John Gordon. Hey, John Gordon here. You know, as we're going through this coronavirus situation, I can't help but think of a time when I lost my job during the dot-com crash. It was the most fearful time of my life. No insurance for my family or my kids, two small children, only a few months of savings in the bank, this close to being bankrupt. And we had a restaurant open where we second mortgaged our home and $20,000 in credit cards as this restaurant was opening, knowing it would take a while to make a profit. Man, it was scary. Well, several years later, I wrote a book during the Great Recession, and it was called The Shark and the Goldfish. And this book was about a goldfish that's always been fed. He was very comfortable. And then the goldfish is taken to the beach by his boy, and a big wave comes crashing on shore, taking the goldfish back into the ocean with it. And now the goldfish is all alone, hungry, and has to learn to find food. He meets Sammy the shark, who teaches him how to be a shark, a nice shark. And he teaches him to be humble and hungry, to choose faith instead of fear, and to embrace change so that he can ride the wave of change to a successful future. You see, if you study companies during the Great Recession and during the Great Depression, if you study people during this time, you will find that people, teams, and organizations, the ones who who thrived during that time were the ones who embraced change. They rode the wave through a successful future by embracing it. Those who resisted the wave, who were unadaptable to change, who were complaining about the situation, who were very negative, they were crushed by the wave. 
And so whether we thrive through change or not is determined by our mindset and how we perceive the change that we are dealing with. It's all how you see the change. During that time of the Great Recession, I was speaking to a bunch of real estate companies and I was meeting all these different realtors who were some thriving and some not doing so well. And they were having awards when I would speak at these events. And I noticed that the rookies were winning all the awards. I realized that there was a curse of experience. The curse of experience longs for the good old days. The curse of experience complains about the way things are. And they're unadaptable to change. And a lot of these veterans were not winning the awards because they were really longer for the good old days. They were very negative. But the rookies had a rookie mindset. They were working hard, developing great relationships, adapting, and creating the good old days right now. I also was speaking several years after that at Pepperidge Farm. And there was a president who was on stage. And he was giving an award to a rookie salesperson. And he said that this rookie was able to obtain this huge sale in a grocery store, a gigantic display. And he showed a display. And he said, this doesn't happen. You're not supposed to ask for this. But he asked. He believed it was possible. And he made it so. You see, what we believe determines what we will create. And you have to think like a rookie. Don't have the curse of experience. Think like a rookie and believe that anything is possible right now. What we have to do is learn, grow, and adapt, transform, change, improve, and then thrive on the other side of that. The shark and the goldfish is all about being uncomfortable. You have to experience this discomfort in order to grow. So now years later, I speak to a lot of sports teams. And when I'm speaking to these incredible teams and great athletes, I ask them this question. Do you want growth or great growth? They all say, I want great growth. Yeah, we all want great growth. Who wants just growth? We want great growth. I say, okay, well, to have growth, you show up every day, you go through your routine. And by doing that on a daily basis, you're going to get better by doing the same thing over and over again. By practicing, you're going to have some growth. And if I, if I encourage you, that's going to help you grow as well. But for great growth, I will encourage you but I also have to challenge you. I have to push you. I have to take you out of your comfort zone in order to have great growth. Are you willing to do that? And they say, yes. Well, then you will experience great growth if you're willing to do that. And to have great growth, we have to feel uncomfortable. We have to go through the discomfort in order to adapt, change, and grow. And that's what's happening right now. We are going through a situation where we're feeling very uncomfortable. There's a lot of discomfort. We have to use this time to say, okay, what do I want now? How can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I get better because of this? And what do I want to create in the future? And in doing so, in, in having that mindset of discomfort leading to growth, embracing change, what will happen is we will then thrive through the change. And thrive because of the change. So the change will not destroy us. Instead, it will uplift us. It will help us grow to have a more successful future. We will ride that wave to a more successful future. So in summary, I want to encourage you. What we're going through is hard and to recognize that. But what you believe will determine what you create. And right now the goal is to survive this time of what we're going through. The goal is to adapt. You're in the ocean of possibilities. Adapt in that ocean. Innovate right now. Grow stronger from it. Become humble and hungry. Choose faith. Think like a rookie and believe that anything is possible. And if we do that, we will thrive. I'm wishing you all the best and just know that I'm cheering you on. God bless. I was lucky enough to have John talk to me about that as it was going on. And I thought this was such an important message for people to hear because we don't know how long this pandemic is going to be. So after this timeout, we'll be right back. 
Prepare like the pros with the new FastDraw. FastDraw is the number one affordable coaching tool used by pro and high school level teams worldwide. With FastDraw, you can save your plays and playbooks digitally, attach video and share with other coaches and your players in seconds. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching content and resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 8,000 free plays and drills from their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Don't forget to use promo code CU10, that is CU10, to receive 10% off your next Fast Model purchase. You're going to find one of the most interesting people you've ever heard speak before is Bob Delaney. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Bob Delaney. It's an honor to be with you all and a pleasure. I'm going to spend a little time uh, talking about this thing called post-traumatic stress. But before we go there, um, I wanted to share a formula that I wasn't good in school. You know, X plus Y equals Z never made any sense to my way of thinking. But this formula does make sense. And it's experiences plus intellectual readiness plus reflection equals development equals growth. And if you break it down, experiences are what? I have them, you have them. If we share our experiences with each other, we learn from each other. And intellectual readiness is the actual studying of a subject. We've all done that in our lives. You know, formal education comes as young people as we go to school, and that's given to us. And then depending on our thirst for knowledge, uh, after high school, we'll go to college, and then for so many others, we continue to uh, study in our particular fields. And those are the easy parts. They're given to us. The hard part is the reflection. We're not a reflective society. You can imagine you're sitting in your office and your boss walks by and you have your feet up on the desk and you're looking out the window. And she says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm reflecting, ma'am. That's not going to go over too big. We're doers in our society. We're not a reflective group by nature. Yet I know that in order for growth and development to take place, we need all three of those things. And we need the experiential, foundational learning that takes place in our lives. From across the dining room table with our family members, to the coaches, if you play sports, that have an influence on your life. All those kinds of folks that have influences on our lives create the experiential and the intellectual readiness but combine it with reflection, all of a sudden you've got something special. So my hope is that some of the words that I share with you today, that before you put your head on the pillow tonight, that you reflect on one of those things. So I'm going to share an experience with you very quickly. Uh, I, I followed in my father's footsteps and joined the New Jersey State Police in 1973. And that organization is steeped in deep military tradition. It was founded by Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf the father of the famed General H. Norman Schwarzkopf of the Gulf Wars. And I uh, went through that training, a very military-style training. And, you know, we were like, after graduating, after 23 weeks from Seagirt, New Jersey, uh, we, were, we had a heck of a gig back then. We only worked two days on and two days off. And we were like the local cops for towns that didn't have their own police department. And we lived at the station just like a firehouse. And... Um, after two days on, two days off, uh, you'd come back and forth. You only worked 15 days a month. My first station was Flemington, then I went to Newton, and I was on Somerville Station. And I walked in after two days off, started to feel a little cocky, like you know the job after a year. And there was a message to call Lieutenant Jack Liddy, Division Headquarters, Criminal Investigation Section, Organized Crime Bureau. This guy had more titles next to his name than I ever saw. And folks, I grew up Irish Catholic. That means I wake up guilty in the morning. I thought I did something wrong. I thought I had a problem on my hands. The other troopers told me to relax, kid. Give the guy a call. I did. He said, are you going to be in for a while? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'll meet you in the kitchen. Every station had a family area because we lived there. An hour and a half later, I walked in. There was an intimidating figure. Lieutenant Liddy stands about six foot four. He's got meat hooks for hands. And he had his hands on his lapels. He's one of those guys. And after a period of conversation, at one point, he said to me, are you interested in doing undercover work? I said, yes. 
He said, and he turned and walked away. I said, Lieutenant, what is it? Narcotics, drugs? Because back then, all we were doing is buy a bus on the street. He said, you keep asking questions, you're going to be out of running. Over the next three weeks, I learned that the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, and New Jersey State Police were joining forces. And we're going to infiltrate organized crime uh, in the New Jersey and New York area along the waterfront. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about undercover work, but I have to share with you the experience that I had that led to death threats, that led to an emotional upheaval within me, emotional violence within me. As a result of that traumatic event in my life of three years becoming another person and living within a subculture that I was not part of. And that created a thirst for knowledge of understanding what post-traumatic stress is. You see, this has been around forever, trauma experiences. After the Civil War, we called it soldier's heart. After World War I, we referred to it as shell shock. After World War II, battle fatigue. And after the Vietnam-Korean wars, we referred to it as flashbacks. Today, it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't pretend to um, have the expertise or the medical knowledge to diagnose anyone with a disorder. But I do know about post-traumatic stress because I experienced it, and that thirst for knowledge has taken me on a four-year decade journey of learning as much as I can and doing work with folks around the world. But I often say that we've all over-medicalized this subject. I just referred to different titles that we gave post-traumatic stress, and then we went to post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've over-medicalized it from my view because the stigma is so strong. But I hasten to add at the end of that, please don't interpret that I'm saying we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. My hope is to build a stronger bridge between those that are going through trauma and the resources that are available to them. Um, you know, I, I, I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan, all over Europe, Asia, um, Canada, every military post throughout the United States. And all too often, I think we think of this thing, post-traumatic stress, as being something that those who serve in the military only experience, or law enforcement, or first responders. And today, I'm working with the healthcare professionals, because they're in a war. They're in a battle with COVID-19. And so those experiences that we go through cause for those kinds of feelings to come up within us. And understanding and having a knowledge of post-traumatic stress. My hope that this conversation and what we do here at MindView over the next few days really whets your appetite to become more knowledgeable and more understanding of what post-traumatic stress is. I refer to it now as operational stress when speaking with the military. Why? Because I found that they were becoming defensive about this conversation called post-traumatic stress because the disorder word was being put on the tail end of it. And when I shortened it to post-traumatic stress only, it helped. But then when I changed it to operational stress, it became a more open conversation because I referred to the operational duties that they have and the resiliency that they have in doing those. Because in resiliency has three elements to it in my mind's eye. See, in order to have resiliency, you have to confront the situation. You have to confront the reality. Second part is you have to have a search for meaning. There has to be, and, and we all have our own religious beliefs, but I, I truly believe that it has to have a spiritual component to resiliency. And then the third part is what I call fear. Flexible, innovative, and adaptive. What I say to the military troops, you do that on a daily basis. You're not afraid to confront anything. You know what your mission is. And no matter what the mission is, you're flexible, innovative, and adaptive. We saw that in the capture kill of bin Laden. When things did not go according to plan, they went to plan B. We all need plan Bs and Cs and Ds in our lives. And we get the opportunity along the way to have people that come into our lives to help influence us. And having those kinds of interactions are so important because to me, peer-to-peer -peer conversations are extremely important to allow what I call the air out of your balloon. If I use the analogy, 
If I had a balloon right here, full of air, how do I get the air out? They take a pin and pop it, we get the air out, but we don't have a balloon anymore. I let it go, it flies all over the room, we don't know where it ends up. It goes out the back door. What happened to the balloon? But if we're patient and willing to listen to sounds we do not want to hear, the kind of sound that when you turn the balloon upside down, it makes that streaking, screeching noise as you let a little air out at a time. But eventually, we get all the air out. We have a balloon that we can use again one day. That's us with trauma. We need to get air out of our balloons. But more often than not, what do we do? Push it down one on top of another, as if we can handle this. Or someone else is going through something worse, so we minimize what we're experiencing. Folks, life lessons come to us on a daily basis. And I was fortunate to have one in, in, in 2013. I was with David Robinson. And the night before the uh, Veterans Day and the laying of the tomb of the, un, uh, of the reef at the tomb of the unknowns at Arlington Cemetery, David and I met with a Navy SEAL team that had come back from deployment. We spent time with them. Next morning, we got up and we were invited guests of General Buchanan, who's in charge of Arlington. And we watched President Obama lay the wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns and were invited into the comments and, and, and listened to the president speak. And if you remember, in 2013, when he gave that presentation and he spoke his words, he introduced the world to Mr. Richard Overton. At the time, Richard Overton was 106 years old. He was the oldest living World War II veteran. Richard Overton had served during World War II at Iwo Jima, served in the Pacific from 1940 to 1945. And at the conclusion of the president's remarks, David Robinson and I got eye contact without saying a word to each other. We both knew we wanted to meet this great American. And so he and I moved as fast as we had from the time that we had both been running the NBA floors over to meet Mr. Overton. And we had pictures with him. And the whole time that I looked at him, I was thinking, had I lived during the time that he served, he and I would have drank from different water fountains. He and I would have used different restrooms. Yet he fought for me. He fought for me and my family. He fought for you and your family. And in thanking Mr. Overton when I was getting his picture, I shook his hand and I kept thanking him over and over. And I think I went too far because he clinched my hand a lot tighter and he pulled me closer. And he said, you know, I can still do more. It was a man at 106 years old saying he could still do more for his fellow man. That's our responsibility. I remember his words. He died at 112 years of age. And I remember his words often because it's a way to push ourselves to say we all can do more. We all can do more in this area of being understanding to those that are going through some difficult times. And just as important to know that self-care is extremely important. What does the flight attendant say to us when we're on the plane, when they're doing the briefing, the safety briefing before the plane takes off. If that mask comes out of the ceiling, put it on yourself first before you put it on someone else. Self-care is extremely important. Those who serve at times, those who have that servant leadership heart, at times to take care of others and not themselves. So you're going to have a variety of presenters over this, this program. And our hope is that it brings home some thoughts that serve you well. As you can tell, I, I like to talk. And uh, I do 15 minutes at home when the refrigerator light goes on. So I, I'm gonna start coming to a close here, but I wanna use an analogy to, to help underline this point as well. I've got a uh, half a bottle of water here. Not too heavy, easy to carry, but Let's say that you all leave and come back 30 days later, and I'm still carrying this half a bottle of water. 
it's going to start to get heavy. It's going to start to weigh on me. I'm going to be a pain in the neck to be around because it's going to pull on my shoulder. It's going to make me irritable. It's the stuff we carry. Sometimes we think our stuff is minimal. It's not that much. What I ask people is not to be judgmental about your stuff. Because if you carry it for a while, until you understand how to put it down and walk away from it, or ask someone else to help you carry it, will you be able to interact with it better? I often refer to the shadows. In fact, I've written two books. One is my story of my journey with post-traumatic stress. The undercover work that I did and how it took me to the game of basketball as a part of my therapy that then opened the door for a career in the NBA as a referee and then as vice president, referee operations director, officials for the NBA. And then all, all that comes together with trying to figure out how do I interact with all this kind of stuff that's, that's, that's available to me. In the second book, I, 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 refer, I, I titled it Surviving the Shadows. Because we all have shadows. But I often tell people that not to fear the shadows. Because in order for the shadow to exist, there has to be light. And it's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to get to that light. So my hope for you is that you all stay healthy, stay safe, and take care of one another. Thank you. We thank Bob. Incredible job. And we can't thank these speakers enough because as all of you that are listening out there, all the coaches around the world that we have that are regular listeners, this is something that, you know, we believe in strongly is that you can learn every day from different folks. And all four of these people taught me so much, and I know they help you. So again, till next week, this is the coach, Brendan Sir.